Second half of Space Cadet by by Robert A. Heinlein, published in 1948. Um, his second uh, novel. Well, I guess he wrote novels in Astounding, but it's his second um, you know, thing novel published as a as a standalone book. Uh, the second in his series of Juveniles, and uh, as I talked about in the last episode, a significant step up, I think, in in quality um, characterization, world building, in, in almost every way. It's a superior book to uh, to uh, rocket ship Galileo. That one's still significant as being kind of a his first novel, of course. But there's, uh, I think, a lot more going on in this this book. Uh, the world building of in the first half of his training of the process he goes through to become a space cadet, and here the interplanetary patrol uh, of which he's becoming a cadet of is kind of like a a peacekeeping force in the solar system that is is. You know, very much is going to remind uh, contemporary readers of, of Starfleet um, in terms of its values of being a, a, a force that respects other cultures but has its own uh, values of, of sacrifice and honor and fairness and justice and, 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 and a strong ethical foundation for its participants, but also... Uh, an open-mindedness to other cultures. I think those those values we see in Starfleet and in the Federation and modern-day Star Trek, uh, maybe, I don't know if they had their roots in this book, but certainly those Star Trek writers, I think, were influenced by, by Heinlein, especially in the next generation era. If you read, a, read like a Trekonomics, which is a, a book that explores the economics of Star Trek, that point is made pretty directly that that the that the original series of Star Trek was very much a Heinlein-esque kind of work, um, and and I think here we see those values even in the next generation because I, I think that is a much more um, ethically grounded approach in, in that work in, or in, in next generation. I mean, so let's let's talk about the second half of this 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 book. He's not quite through training when you get to the halfway point in the text. Um, he's got a, a few more ships he, he, he goes to, but I think the, the, I think it's in chapter nine or maybe it's chapter 10. Yeah. Um, is where he, he kind of goes on leave. Dotson, I, I, not he, there, there's actually several main characters. Uh, three most important for this are Dotson, who is our kind of main point of view character, but then Tex and then Jensen and Jensen becomes really, really important in the second half. He's, he's kind of someone you could almost miss. Uh, there's so much about Tex and Dodson in the first half, but Jensen's super important because he's he's born in Venus, so he's going to be the guy who knows Venetian culture. Um, but anyways, uh, we spend most of the second half of the book with these three guys and our good friend Burke, who was washed up from the uh, interplanetary uh, patrol and, and takes on a job basically in the merchant service and becomes kind of an antagonist, really the antagonist in the second half half of the book. Um, it's not the worst person. It, it, there's no, no like Nazis in space kind of antagonist here. Um, the, the villain really is this Burke uh, 
guy who was once a comrade of them, but doesn't share the values of, of the patrol and therefore becomes uh, an obstacle that they have to face in fulfilling the moral, spiritual, ethical obligations of the, of the patrol. Uh, I'll get to that all. But there's a wonderful chapter where uh, Dodson is on kind of leave back at home. And it's, it's the, we can, we can see here a sense of the tensions between Earth and space, Earth and the rest of the solar system in the Saturday, that we saw in the Saturday Evening Post essays or, or short stories. In there, you constantly had this theme of, of the gap between how people on Earth feel and experience things and see the universe and how the people who go out to space do. You think like the, the can't go home again story or uh, the um, green hills of earth, sp even space jockey, you, you have this, this, this tension played out. And I talked a lot about that in those episodes. And I think they're really uh, astounding stories, um, really excellent stories. And I'm looking forward to reading more of his short stories shortly, which I'll do in the next, uh, starting with the next episode. Uh, we're running out of short stories, but we got a few more to do. Um, those values you kind of see played out in that chapter on Earth, where his family doesn't, Dodson's family doesn't fully understand his commitment to the values of of the patrol and seem to want to talk him out of it. It, it reminds us also of the of the dilemma we see in uh, in Starship Troopers. Well, which we'll talk about in a future episode. But in Starship Troopers, you have the characters' families don't want him to go into the military, don't want him to go in the military and become a citizen, and want him just to become a business person. But our main point of view character on that novel wants to uh, make the sacrifice to serve in the military to become a citizen. And there's a, a gap in understanding between both, like the dreams of the family and the young man. Um, that's not something that's really explored in rocket ship Galileo very much. There, there is the tension is pointed to that maybe your parents don't want you to do this, but they all go along with them. There's no family tension here. And I think, I don't want to say that's a constant theme in all the juveniles, because there are juveniles where family is very supportive of, of our young male protagonists. But often it's a theme. It's something that's definitely on Heinlein's mind is the generational tension between those of Earth and those who, who see the future of humanity in the stars. Um, so I, I just wanted to point out that that's a really kind of interesting, powerful chapter that you might skip over or not think much of as you move on to look at the, see how the plot really develops in the second half. Because you want to see him on patrol. You want to see our space cadet make it, graduate, get, get on his ship and go on his adventures and, and see where he ends up. Um, we actually only see the very first moment of his career, his first his first mission here, but it's it's a good one. It's 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 uh, something. It's it's memorable. So his first mission is to find the Pathfinder, uh, which is a ship that's gone missing uh, somewhere off beyond Mars in the asteroid belt, and. Um, again, this is something that you see right in next generation uh, missions like this, where they come across an old ship or a derelict ship, and everyone's dead, and there's a mystery of what happened. Here, there's not; they figure out pretty quickly that it was damaged, and they lost uh, they 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 lost the you know their air. You know, it was like an airlock being burst open, and 
and it was destroyed, but it found like really interesting evidence. And this is something that, that Heinlein actually played with in some of his other, actually in Rocketship Galileo, now that I think about it, is the idea that there was once a planet that were the, the asteroids were once a planet that was ex destroyed um, by, by apparently nuclear bombs. And then this is the second juvenile novel to make this warning that there in Rocketship Galileo was on the moon, a civilization on the moon was destroyed by by nuclear bombs. Here it's implied that the planet that was on the asteroids, that that once made up the asteroids, had a sentient advanced species that and that blew themselves up essentially. It's actually more compelling than just the moon. I mean it's it's kind of in a way kind of boring that, oh the craters on the moon, if we get a closer look at them, are actually a nuclear bomb blast craters fine but the, the, to realize that the asteroids was once a, a larger planet that you know maybe millions of years before had that once had an advanced civilization that destroyed itself it's a more of a big it's more of an earth-shattering discovery i think than just uh, there used to be people on the moon i in my view it's, it's a little more cool and then you got that added level of mystery in that the ship that figures this out was destroyed and our space cadet, you know, is part of the mission that, that not only finds out what happened to the ship, but finds out what the ship had discovered before their unfortunate accident. Um, and they want to get back to Earth to report this news. So, um, so some go back, they take that Pathfinder, fix it up, and use it back to Earth. But uh, our heroes here, Dodson and Tex and Jensen, uh, Kind of are, are, are stay behind and and also head back to Earth. But on their return, they get uh, duty calls once again, um, and they can't go back to Earth yet. Duty calls be, and and they hear about a conf a, a problem on Venus. Like it sounds like it's a native indigenous revolt. Now the Venusians are really kind of an interesting species, uh, or they call them Venarian. I want to say Venusians. I don't know when we've decided it's Venusians, or I, there's stories that also use Venerians. So I don't know. I, I don't know how that was decided. Which one we're going to use? I think Phil Dick always used Venusians. So I'll probably just keep doing it because it it sounds better in my head. But uh, it sounds like there's an indigenous revolt there, and these Venusians are amphibious people, and they're kind of matriarchal. Um, they have a really interesting culture that we've seen hinted at in other Heinlein stories. I think like Methuselah's children, we see cultures that are sort of like that, that don't have privacy. All right? In fact, it's explicitly stated here that their only private moments are when they're eating, um, that in their normal life, they, they live more of a collective communal kind of existence. And they always talk to people, they talk to each other as like sisters, they use gendered language when talking to to others. And you see this gendered language on how they talk. Anyone in a position of authority is called a mother. So I'll give you a little bit of a, of a taste of how they, they speak. Um, May thy mother rest happily um, is, is, is like a greeting they give. Uh, later on, it says, let us go to my mother and let her smell thee. Again, a sign of the, these not being private people, where everything is kind of shared, even the, the, the smells. 
um, of people. That's how they introduce each other. Um, now, they appear to be kind of primitive and backwards, but uh, we learned that they're actually pretty sophisticated in their technology. And this was something that I think was rehashed in, in Methuselah's children with one of the populations they saw where it was in a very advanced species, but it lacked like privacy. Um, and I just think it's really cool how Heinlein tries to just not, not in like, just not make them humans that look different, like in the Burroughs novels, right? Where there's not that much difference between the aliens, except maybe how they look. Um, very superficial differences between them and humans, or they're just like a tribe of humans that happen to look different. Heinlein is, you know, really create fully formed cultures here. Maybe not as well developed as we would like to see, and, and, and it would have been nice if we could re-meet these Venusians. I know he's going to do it with Red Planet, with the Martians. That's maybe the, the most well-developed of any alien culture that he explores up to that point. Um, but it's, it's really nice that he puts that thought into these cultures and the language and the way they speak. And then we have our character. This is why it's important that Jensen was from Venus, is he knew the most about them. So he's able to take command during this part of their mission because he knows the most about Venus and Venusians. And he also seems to be the most committed to the values of the, of the patrol. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because uh, they get this like distress call from Venus that the humans there are under like attack and there's an indigenous revolt. And they go to check it out. And um, they get there and they end up like being captured by the Venusians. And the reason why is actually it has to do with Burke. Um, Burke had earlier, uh, also he's also been captured. Um, but, um, but before that, he went to Venus because he's given up on his career in the patrol. He doesn't share the values. Instead, he goes to an institution that has different values. Like he doesn't go to the Marines, he goes into the merchant, basically the merchant fleet, which is just a capitalist fleet, right? It's, it fits him. He's from a rich background. He wants, he's, he, he's more attracted by the desire to make money. And that's how he interacts with these other people in the solar system is as a source of making money. And what he finds is that there's like some, some mining things he can do there, that there's a, a very valuable ore on Venus. And he basically wants to like uh, do whatever they did in Pandora, right? Like try to just mine the un unobtainium, whatever. Um, he wants that stuff. And he basically starts violating the rights of the local Venerian population, kidnapping like their matriarch and things like that. And eventually his crew is killed. He is captured. And then he's the one who sent the distress call initially. So it sounded like it was an indigenous revolt. And in a sense, it was uh, an indigenous revolt against uh, a colonizing force. But it's also um, pretty clear it was just one guy. Because there are humans living on Venus who respect their culture and, and weren't victims of this. But Burke is threatening the whole human presence on Venus. It's a threat to the patrol. And it led to not only him being captured, but also these uh, patrol men, uh, including our cadet and his young comrades, all get uh, thrown in prison. And so we, got, we spend the last third of the book or the last quarter of the book in this Venerian prison where 
Jensen has to use his knowledge of Venusian culture and the values of the patrol to make it right with the, the matriarchal culture of the, of the Venerians. And he does it through his, his like, like I said, through his knowledge and through his, the, the values of the, of the patrol. Um, so ultimately what saves them is those values of respect for other cultures, of, of, of honor, of sacrifice, and of duty. They eventually um, succeed and are allowed to escape. Well, they're not, they're just freed, right? And then the, the question is how to get back. They don't have the means to get back because Burke's ship was destroyed, but so is the patrol vessels destroyed. And the, the natives, uh, we learn, are super high tech. They're super technological and they can actually fix up ships. And which ship do they fix up? Well, the very first patrol ship that went to Venus, which was referred to earlier in the story. So we had references to that ship that went to Venus and was destroyed or lost. And they, those pilots, those cadets, those, you know, the patrolmen and women who are on that ship became mythologized as great heroes of the, of the early generation, the heroic age of human expansion into the solar system. And they get, uh, but they, they all died, but the ship's intact. And so the people from Venus, the Venerians, are able to help the patrolmen fix up the ship. And that's what they're able to use to make it to human settlements elsewhere in, in Venus. I think it's like in the pole is where the humans live because it's cooler there, right? Venus is hot, obviously, um, but the poles are a little colder so they can go there. Um, and basically the final point is in the, in the, in the novel is their debriefing. And Dodson's realization that although he did heroic things, although he um, sacrificed himself, risked his life for the patrol, that he's not going to get a, like necessarily a medal for that because he's just doing the bare minimum. What he thought, and that's the lesson of the story, I suppose, more than anything else, is that um, commitment to the values of the military, um, in this case, this is actually uplifted higher than the military. It's presented to us as a superior institution from the Marines, but just doing his duty is not praiseworthy, right? And I think that's the lesson for the young readers Heinlein's trying to reach, is that being honorable and doing your duty to your institution, to, you know, what you meant to serve is not something that deserves praise. It's the bare minimum, right? And he's, um, and he learns that lesson, and he's able to go on his career, and he's going to be successful, and 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 all that. Um, so that's the story, um, and I just think it's really, really, uh, it's been a wonderful ride. Um, it's taken me a long time to read this because I picked it up over the summer when I was still reading the other Heinlein stories from 1947. I started reading Space Cadet, but I got distracted with other things. My dad was in Taiwan. So I set it aside, and then I picked it up again after I finished the short stories, obviously. And work's been pretty busy lately, so I haven't been producing episodes at the same clip. So it seems a long time ago I first started reading this, but um, I finished it. This was one of the juveniles I hadn't read before, and I'm really glad I did. I, I think, although it's a very small story, and, and some of the other juveniles are a little more epic, and our characters are a little bit more heroic and a little bit more brilliant than Dotson. Dotson is a bit normal compared to some of the other 
juvenile heroes as, as I remember them, but what he has is his commitment to these principles and, and they, they waver at times, you know, he, there's moments where he thinks the Venerians are his enemy and he wants to side a little bit with Burke. Um, but ultimately he realizes that patrol is a higher calling for him and something he should, uh, you know, embrace. And I think that's uh, really a well-told story. That part of it is really, really well told. I had a lot of fun with this, this particular novel. Um, I don't know, um, but let me know what you think of, of Space Patrol. I'm giving it my strongest recommendation, um, especially compared to Rocket Ship Galileo. And next up, we will be looking at the short stories Heinlein published in 1947. And I think there's five or six of them. Sorry, did I say 1947? I mean, 1948. We're in 1948. Um, um, we'll start with the future history ones. Uh, which most of them are, The Black Pits of Luna, Gentlemen Be Seated, The Long Watch, and Ordeal in Space. And I can expect these are going to, uh, I think these are mostly published in the Green Hills of Earth collection. So thematically, they're going to be similar, although I haven't read any of them yet. Um, then we also have Our Fair City, um, which, and that's it, I think. Yeah, those are our, our stories. So we're going to be in the Future History series uh, for most of the next few weeks. And then after that, we'll jump to 49 and uh, Red Planet, I think is the next novel we'll be looking at, which I have read before, and as I just suggested, has one of the best descriptions of uh, alien culture, the most well-developed uh, alien culture I think we've seen from Heinlein yet with the Martians there. So that's going to be it for now. Um, thanks for listening. Um, I've had fun with this novel, um, but I'll, I'll see you next time with, I think, Ordeal in Space is where we'll start.